This is the Feast of Christ the King. It's a beautiful feast. It's always been one of my favorites. I think, but as, as Americans, though, I think we kind of just nod at it, acknowledge it, and then usually move on. I think we, if, if you think of this feast, if we put much consideration into it at all, uh, you probably imagine it as a very ancient feast, something that came out of the early Middle Ages, perhaps. Uh, you think of you know, Charlemagne and in in all of his glory, the king, the king who ruled, uh, who was the beginning and the end of the law, uh, in a time when kings were very powerful, and this would have been a good symbol for God and his omnipotence and his power and his dominion. But it's actually a new feast. It's, it was promulgated in 1925 uh, by Pope Pius XI, uh, who proposed this feast in kind of the wake of World War I. So he saw Western Europe torn apart in the first great world war. And he also, in his time in Poland and then later in his time in Italy, saw the rise of what would become you know, the, the great communist power in the East and the great fascist power in the West that would be the beginnings of World War II. Uh, and so, seeing that, he promulgated this feast, the Feast of Christ the King. For Christ is the King of the world. He is the only King uh, that, that rules over our wills and over our hearts. And so today I kind of found myself in a difficult position whether to pre- preach on Christ the King or to preach on this amazing gospel that we've been given. Uh, and I decided to preach on both, but I'm not going to preach two homilies. I'm going to try to be, bring them together as the church proposes uh, and try to uh, kind of bring out this gospel with the feast that we're, that we're given. I won't preach two homilies. So in, this, uh, in the reading from Matthew, we see the judgment of the nations. So this is a reading that I think we should find kind of equally very comforting and very terrifying if we read it as it's given to us. So these, the judgment of these people, these are the people who did not know Christ. They have not heard the gospel. The sheep and the goats in this passage have not heard the gospel that... Christ has given them. Because he says all these things to them and they don't know who he is. So he says, you visited me when I was ill or in prison. And they say, who were you, Lord? We didn't know that we had visited you. But regardless of whether they knew him or not, he said, come into my kingdom. And that's a great comfort to us. For those who follow the law written in their hearts, though they do not know Christ in the gospel, the Lord will welcome them into his kingdom. But then he turns to them, those who neglected him, though they did not know him. Those who have never heard the gospel, but although they had never heard it, they did not serve the poor. They did not serve the ill. They did not care for those in prison. And he says, depart from me, you accursed, to eternal fire. And that should terrify us. And not necessarily because we don't think that the Lord's providence cares for those who don't hear the gospel, but because we failed to preach the gospel to them. And so, we find ourselves, in a sense, responsible for those who have never heard the gospel. So, who, will they be punished? We don't know. But will we be punished who failed to preach the gospel to others? I think so. So, where do we find our comfort here? I think we find it in this feast that we have been given. The feast of Christ the King. We'll come back to the gospel in a bit, but I'd like to talk a little bit about this feast. 
Why was it that Pope Pius XI gave us the Feast of Christ the King? Uh, when in the West, uh, we, we don't really even know what a king is. Uh, we actually fought hard not to have a king anymore. Uh, and I think when we think, of, when you think of royalty in our day, we probably think of maybe like People Magazine and the royalty in England and like, what are they doing today? What are they wearing? It's like a perpetual fashion show. And so perhaps we think of that. Or we think of, uh, if you're like a history buff or something, you might think of Louis XIV and the gardens of Versailles, these big, beautiful gardens in France that show the, the king's power and his strength and his uh, kind of the height of the absolute monarch who can do whatever he wants. If he wants to build 20-acre perfectly manicured gardens, he can do that. But neither of these show for us the kingship of Jesus Christ. None of them uh, are good symbols of that kingship. I think the, the best place to go to learn of Jesus' kingship is his own words. So we go to the trial when Jesus is speaking to Pontius Pilate. And Pilate asks him, are you a king? Because these people are accusing you of being a king. They're accusing you of taking Caesar's place. Uh, and he says, Jesus replies, you said it. So he doesn't deny being a king. He actually acknowledges that he is a king. But then he says, but my kingdom is not of this world. And so, does that lead us to think perhaps that, that the kingdom of God, as we've been hearing about in the Gospels for the past 10 to 15 weeks, Jesus telling us parable after parable of the kingdom of God, is that something that is at the end of time? You know, we, we, we meet the kingdom of God, this kingdom comes about, uh, in the second coming of Christ, or in heaven. Perhaps it's just something that we see in heaven someday. Uh, absolutely not. Jesus' kingdom is in the world. His kingdom is here. But it's not of this world. So in, the, in that sense, it doesn't find its foundations here. It's not built by us. It's given to us by God. Uh, it is God's presence in the world. That is his kingdom. And so, uh, this kingdom then... I think this, had, this distinction is good because it tells us that Jesus, because his kingdom isn't of this world, he isn't going to rule in the same way that kings rule here. So we see kings rule in this world by power, by force, or by law. Uh, instead, Jesus rules by the power of his truth, by preaching the truth. That's how Jesus rules. Uh, the great English preacher Ronald Knox says that truth once it, is, once it is rightly apprehended, once we understand the truth, it has a compelling power over the human heart uh, that we must assert and defend those truths that we know to be true. We will die for something that is true uh, because, because of that hold that it has over our hearts. And so Jesus tells Pilate, For this I was born, to bear witness to the truth. That's why Jesus came, to tell us the truth of the gospel. So then his kingdom, it doesn't conquer the world by means of force. It conquers by this very truth. This kind of infectious truth that takes hold of our hearts and we can go nowhere else. When, when Peter is discouraged in the gospel and Jesus asks him, Will you leave me as my other disciples are leaving me? He says to him, To where will I go, Lord? 
you have the words of eternal life. So when God demands something of us that's uncomfortable, we have nowhere else to go because he is the one who speaks the truth. And so in the gospel we see uh, the Roman Empire, which in the first century was the most powerful empire that had ever ruled the world. They'd gone farther than anyone else. And within 300 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, we see the Roman Empire conquered by another empire, and that's the kingdom of God. Without lifting a sword, the gospel had conquered the hearts of the people in the Roman Empire, and it, it, it became, in a sense, a Christian empire. Not one that ruled by force, but one that ruled with the truth of the gospel. And so, what does this mean for us? Uh, I think we've learned in, in kind of Christianity as a whole, it, most of the times by doing it wrong, we've learned what, kind of what the kingdom of God is and should be in this world. First, we know that because it's not of the world, we can't use the means of the world to spread the gospel. That, by that I mean we can't use force. Uh, we learned in the Middle Ages that you can't spread the gospel by the sword because you can't conquer the heart with force. Uh, you must win them with the truth. And so, whenever we tried to spread the gospel by the sword, it was, it was devastating. It was a disaster. But then I think we learned today that we're, we're kind of in the opposite dilemma, which is that our world preaches very fervently the opposite gospel of ours, which is the gospel of relativism. The gospel of there is no truth. The same one that Pontius Pilate asked when he said, what is truth in response to Jesus? So this kind of dictatorship of relativism that we face preaches that you have your truth and I have my truth. And as long as we're not hurting each other with our truths, then we can just kind of live together in tolerance. But that's contrary to the gospel in the sense that Jesus doesn't claim to be the truth for Christians and everybody else has the different one. He claims to be the truth, the definitive truth in the world. That his gospel is the gospel. And so we need to confront that. Uh, we, don't, we don't worship Jesus as God because it's our preference. We do it because it's the truth. That he is God. That he did rise from the dead. That our sins have been forgiven. And that we're destined for eternal life. That's something that isn't a preference. It's just the truth. And so this feast is important today because it reminds us of the mission that we have if we're going to respond well to that truth. The, the mission to bring Christ's kingship to the edge of the world, to the fringes. And so we're, we come back to this gospel passage that uh, we see we're going to be held responsible, in a sense, for those who don't hear the gospel who we could preach to, but we choose not to. And so this, this ought to give us a missionary zeal. And I don't, I don't think, we, we don't preach the gospel ever out of fear. We don't preach the gospel out of fear of hell. We preach the gospel because we love God, and we know that his gospel brings joy to those who believe it. And so, um, this feast has always been a feast for the laity. Because I, as a priest... I will never reach to the fringes that you can reach to. You, in your workplace, and in, in the people that you meet, will meet people way beyond the boundaries of anywhere I could ever go. So this is your mission, in a sense. You're going to places that I could never reach, people who will never step foot into church. 
unless you preach the gospel to them. And so you can go places that I can't go. So this is your mission, in a sense, that Christ's kingship, to bring Christ's kingship to the edge of the world is always a mission for the laity. So uh, I'm not one to give homework for homilies. I, I actually am kind of against it, but I'm going to have an exception to the rule today. And I'm going to give you a homework assignment. It's not a homework assignment. It's a mission. Uh, so think of, you, not even people who aren't Catholic, think of three Catholics that you know who haven't been going to church for whatever reason, legitimate, illegitimate, whatever. Three Catholics that you know. And invite them back to Mass for Advent. Advent's a time of the year when everyone's feeling the spirit. You know, and, the, and even, the, even the media is telling us about the holidays because hopefully it'll get us to buy more stuff. But regardless, people feel the spirit during this, this Advent season. And so uh, invite them back to church, and not just once, at least once a week for all four Sundays of Advent. Uh, and it's a short Advent, so your mission doesn't have to last quite as long. This assignment's over in a mere four weeks. So uh, for my part, I invite you to the penance service on December 10th at St. Anne's. We kind of combine those. So Holy Spirit and St. Anne's have the same penance service. It's on December 10th. Uh, and I think I, I invite you to a penance service because Advent is a time of hopeful expectation is the way the church describes it. So it's hopeful expectation. We wait for the Lord in his incarnation during Advent. And a great preparation for that is reconciliation. I go to, I go to confession once a week because John Paul II went to confession once a week and he was a saint. And so I figure I can go, if he goes once a week, I better go once a week. I'm not telling you to go to confession once a week. I'm inviting you to go once on this Advent penance service. Uh, and it's just a great way of preparing our hearts for the Lord's coming in the Incarnation. Uh, one last word, just the, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, with, it's amongst us. It's in our hearts, and it's in the hearts of anyone who believes the preaching of Jesus Christ. And the world will always rage against that in one way or another. It, it always has and it always will. But we, we have great hope because Jesus Christ has already won the battle in his resurrection. It's just our jobs to tell everyone about that. That's a great job to have, to tell everyone about the battle that's already been won. Uh, we're those messengers. So we take courage in that mission that Christ has given us, and we spread the truth because the truth is what sets us free to live a joyful life.